1979, and Pat Benatar is on stage at Uncle Sam's, jumping up and down with a microphone in her hand. The crowd has been waiting for this one, the single from her new album, and as the guitar builds, so does the energy on the floor. Like most emerging rock stars, Pat is wearing all black, and behind her, a guitar crunches through the chorus. From the dance floor to the balcony, people are cheering and nodding to the beat. For us, this is a glimpse of the past. But people at that 79 Benatar show were seeing the future. As Pat performed at the Uncle Sam's Disco in downtown Minneapolis, the club's corporate management had their eye on an exit. Thanks to her and others, the venue's next chapter would turn out a lot less Saturday Night Fever and a lot more rock and roll. I'm Mark Wheat. This is The Current Rewind, the show putting music's unsung stories on the map. For our second season, we're exploring the history of First Avenue, the downtown Minneapolis venue that has become one of the Twin Cities and the country's greatest clubs. In our first episode, we covered the beginning of First Avenue's life as a music venue, which hit a few bumps right away. When the depot filed for bankruptcy in the summer of 71, it stayed closed for a year, before an out-of-town company turned it into a disco. That scheme stayed alive until 1979, when two rock shows, The Ramones and Pat Benatar playing back-to-back nights, set the table for First Avenue's future. For this second episode, we're excited to introduce Holly Hansen, the musician behind Zoo Animal. Holly will help us tell the story of First Avenue's second incarnation as a suburban disco in the middle of downtown Minneapolis and the people who, in 1979, turned it into a, quote, new wave experience. The two most vivid memories I have of First Avenue both involve intimacy, but in very different ways. I was standing at the side of the stage during a Kevin Drew show, and a stagehand made eye contact with me and waved me over. The next thing I knew, I was slow dancing with Kevin on stage, thinking, why me? I seriously think there are many people in that room who would have loved to be on that stage holding his sweaty body, but here I was, simply being a good sport. A few years later, I released the Zoo Animal album, Departure, some of the most personal music I'd ever written, and the release show was at the 7th Street entry. I don't know how to explain what was going on that night, but it felt very different. It was so quiet and focused. It was like the audience took up part of the weight of the songs with me. I had never felt so connected with an audience before or since. I feel like myself at First Avenue because it's ready for any experience, always centered on music. It's a place where no matter who you are or what you like, the audience and performer can be one. In the late 1970s, First Ave wasn't known as a venue for intimate performances. And then punk happened. Back in the summer of 1972, the depot had been shut down for a year. Then in July, it reopened under new management. Instead of a black exterior, the former Greyhound station was now painted red, white, and blue. 
The depot's owners hadn't sold the company, but American Events, a company based in Cincinnati, took over its operation, turning it into one of several Uncle Sam's franchises throughout the U.S. I think they, were, they had like eight or nine by the time we, by the time the Uncle Sam's opened here. Chris Riemann Schneider is the author of First Avenue, Minnesota's Main Room. And in fact, the, the, the first year or two of, of the Uncle Sam's, they struggled a bit early on, apparently. But one of the things that really helped it uh, was in maybe about 75 or 76, they changed the, the liquor law to Minnesota, went from 21 to 18 and up drinking. And obviously that was a big, big boost to the place. By the late 70s, you've got the heyday of kind of the seedy downtown, you know, Hennepin Strap. Andy Sturdivant is the co-author of the book Closing Time, A History of Twin Cities Bars. That's the place that you're talking about when, you know, you're going to school and the taunt that you hear is, ah, your mom works on Hennepin. Like, this is that era. And so you've got that whole strip and there's still a couple of bars, you know, just, just barely hanging on from that older era, but you've mostly got like strip clubs, you know, you've got like porno shops, you've got, um, you know, clubs, you know, that's where the gay bathhouses are. And Uncle Sam's was one of the roughest bars near the Hennepin Strip. The manager was a U of M dropout named Steve McClellan. My name's Stephen McClellan, and I worked at a nightclub downtown from 1973 to 2004. Steve met with the current Rewinds producer, Cecilia Johnson, for two separate interviews. For the first, he brought Leanne Weimar, First Avenue's former director of marketing. For the second, he came with Richard Luca, who started as a door person and ended up designing First Ave's logo. Steve had a story about everyone. Dave All, Tom Spiegel, Kara Lewis, Gary Rue, Pat Lyons, Kevin Zodalski, Mark Downey. And as you might hope, Steve McClellan is one of live music's biggest fans. One of his favorite quotes is from Frank Zappa. Once you record it, you've sold out. He says he picked up this attitude as a college kid. I'm a West Bank guy. I remember when people would go to the West Bank when I was going to the U. I lived on the West Bank from 68, 69 to 73. And you had five, six venues doing live music. Steve was on the West Bank attending the University of Minnesota, but dropped out in the mid-70s. Before that, though, he started working the bar at Uncle Sam's. My feeling is in 75, they put me in a management training. I had been bartending probably since late 1973. And after they sent me to the management training thing, I was ready to go back to school. I was fed up with the corporate nature of it. And then I came back and I was pulled out of training early because Pat Lyons, who was managing Minneapolis at the time, got promoted. They pulled me out of training and gave me First Avenue. Even after Steve's promotion, he and his bosses didn't always get along. Well, you want to get me on a rant when I put the first black doorman at the door when American Events hated it and all the people involved couldn't believe I had a black doorman? Um, women in management. I put a woman named Marsha Lear in the first av- or the Uncle Sam's management program, and I wish I could find her again because I owe her an apology. American Events was totally not going to have a female manager back in the 70s. And I realized I sent her, I went through their management program. It's a good old boy network. I hated it. But I, I, looking back and seeing how their management meetings went and all that, it would be like you were being run by a whatever. I, I never went to a fraternity. But back in college, I always thought they were kind of a weird group. 
frat guys. Pretty elite group. Um, they drink a lot of beer. And my image of that whole uh, upper management of American events reminded me like they were all from Buffalo, New York. It was one big frat running the company. The music at Uncle Sam's was largely DJs playing safe pop hits, as dictated by the national office. They had this this deal where there would be DJs with a live drummer. And this was actually where um, Bobby Z, first waiter of Prince of the Revolution, first played the club. He was like 18 or 19 as on, on dance night and just playing along to recorded music. And they used to have, there was another guy, um, Danny Caswell, who was, he performed with as a like a jungle theme. He he had drums built into like logs. It was like this jungle vibe. I mean, pretty pretty cheesy stuff, uh, from what I can tell. But uh, it was a big hit. They only had concerts once in a while. That you know they would they would bring in some local and regional stuff. And then later on, after McClellan got a little more involved in the late seventies, they brought in. Stuff that was more top 40. It didn't, that stuff didn't do well. One feature at Uncle Sam's that brought repeat business was at Sunday Night Teen Dances. One of the regulars there was a future Time member and hit-making producer Jimmy Jam, as he told Pete Schultes of City Pages in 2003. Yeah, it was a disco, and it was uh, it was packed, man. I mean, and I know they had at least a thousand people every Sunday. There was a crowd that um, that was sort of a roller skating crowd that uh, um, I used to hang out with at the roller gardens, and uh, and that I think the roller gardens was like a big Friday night thing. So you you know you'd go to the gardens on Friday night, and you know Saturday was there was a whole lot of different options, and then Sunday was always you know Uncle Sam's, but it was a lot of the same people you'd see, you know, just kind of from my circle i went to washburn high and so all is sort of that crowd from from there but but really the crowd came to uncle sam's from everywhere i mean back when you know hopkins was like really a suburb and like seemed like it was you know on the other side of the world kids from hopkins and minnetonka and wyzetta and you know it was basically like a, a melting pot of uh you know races and ages but mostly a lot of cute girls and it was just a fun place to uh to hang out the history of disco is complicated, and although it has roots in black and queer culture, Uncle Sam's version was decidedly mainstream. At that point, it, it really wasn't city kids as much as a lot of the, the suburban kids were, were coming downtown to hit Uncle Sam's. I mean, it, it, it kind of was that kind of place. Yeah, a little, little bit more of a of a shot bar kind of vibe, and that's when they had the the firecracker drinks, which apparently was just basically red food dye or red coloring and, and vodka. Uh, nobody talks about those drinks fondly, but for some reason they were ubiquitous there. And people still have the, the firecracker glasses, which I guess goes with the patriotic Uncle Sam's idea. Most of the bands that played Uncle Sam's did covers, but there was the occasional local band playing originals. The Suicide Commandos, one of the Twin Cities' first punk groups, formed in 1974. Later, the Commandos would become regulars at a new club called Jay's Longhorn, where Peter Jesperson worked as house DJ. It opened in June of 77, and I think the, the DJ booth, it was a Naugahyde uh, disco uh, unit that they rented uh, until uh, they built a booth for me in the corner. But at the time, yeah, we rented this Naugahyde disco thing with flashing lights that we never used. And 
it was on wheels, so it wasn't very sturdy, and people would bump into it, and records would skip, and I'd be screaming at people. The Longhorn was where you went if you lived in the Twin Cities and identified in some way as punk. Bands that played there included Talking Heads, Elvis Costello, The Police, and the B-52s. The Longhorn was a world away from Uncle Sam's. I kind of really felt an outsider to that whole Longhorn scene. I was not part of it. But soon, Steve would hire someone who was. Uh, I'm Kevin Cole. I am chief content officer at KEXP in Seattle. Kevin was a Longhorn regular who worked at Hot Licks, a record shop downtown, where one of his co-workers was a young Jimmy Jam. I was hired in 78. I worked at First Ave, Uncle Sam's, from 78 to 91. I was brought in to help usher in a change, and I was a total misfit for the club at that time. Uh, It was a pretty mainstream, suburban, Saturday night fever-type disco, and that era was starting to die. And I think also in part because Steve Eggsgard, the DJ who kind of reigned supreme during that 70s disco heyday, was leaving, so they needed a DJ. I, I remember going to the back door, meeting Steve. You know, at that time, I, you know, Joey Ramone was my idol, so I looked like one of the Ramones, long hair, ripped jeans, tennis shoes. And Steve and I, you know, had a great conversation, but I didn't know really how it went. And then like a week later, he called and he's like, hey, can you, you, you start in like two days? So I think they had a need. In fact, they did. I could tell American Events at the time was already planning on dumping Minneapolis, but didn't tell anybody. That's my gut feeling when I look at paperwork and stuff. So that brings us through the turmoil and the transition from Uncle Sam's to Sam's. We were kind of just dumped. Alan was jilted. That's Alan Fingerhut, who still co-owned the club at that point. Steve's plan was to bring Jack Myers, a lawyer who Steve knew from Catholic school, on board for damage control. When American Events pulled out and Alan was deciding, they had both Byron and Mel Ornstein, the attorney, telling him, close the club, we can't lose any more money. You know, there was two of the big hoops I had to hurdle. I do remember I took a half cut, whatever American Events was paying me at the time, because I wanted to add Jack to the management team. And then, of course, American Events pulled out by sucking all the money out and putting no improvements in. So when we had taken over the club, we were like $60,000 in debt with no backup revenue source. That's a huge amount of money. Money was the big difference between Steve and Jack's management styles. I always wanted to spend money. Jack always wanted to save money. And that was our whole working relationship. <laughs> I'd just taken over manager and I started getting bills from people for stuff that happened in 70 and 71. And I couldn't, this is at the time American Events had pulled out. If there's any reason for that club being open financially, it would be Jack. He went through years of stressful deposits and non-deposits and um, the financial end. It, it went open. to replacing light bulbs was an issue. So, oh, yeah. Sometimes. Oh, yeah, time. because we had the big fluorescent tubes mm-hmm. that were expensive, and just putting them up was a pain in the butt. The turning point for Uncle Sam's came on November 28, 1979. That night, Steve had booked the Ramones. It was the New York punk hero's third show in the Twin Cities. Peter Jesperson, the Longhorn DJ and co-founder of Twin Tone Records, who also worked the counter at the Lindale Avenue record store Orfolk Jokopis, saw the first. Well, you know, Kelly's Pub in 77, um, 
but I was, of course, I was at, you know, every Ramones show. Uh, I'm sure they ever did in Minneapolis. So we did in stores with them when they were in town at, at Orfolk for each of the first three albums. By the third time the Ramones were there, I think that, you know, we had several where they got so crowded, the police came. And that was one of them because people were spilling out all over, you know, the corner there at 26th and Lindale. So, you know, they got bigger each time. And, uh, you know, some people came because they were a curiosity and other people came because, you know, they were just such a great band. But they were super nice. I mean, they were so friendly, loved hanging around the store. They all bought records. The one time Jesperson skipped seeing the Ramones was in November of 1978 at the St. Paul Civic Center when they opened for Foreigner. The longtime Minneapolis Tribune critic Michael Anthony remembers cringing at that show. What it suggested to me was uh, uh, an an elemental truth about pop music and the venue, how important the venue is, because their brand of of punk, that those short, quick tunes... Uh, works only in a club. It has to have a small thing and boom, 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 boom. You can't do that in a big cavernous room. Whereas Foreigner, Foreigner wrote music that was meant to be played in an arena. But the Ramones didn't just sound better in a club. Their whole vibe felt better in a smaller room. Punk rock was a tight-knit subculture, and McClellan responded instantly to its do-it-yourself ethos. He booked the Ramones and Pat Benatar on consecutive nights to the booking agency Premier in New York. He says this was a total coincidence. Now, understand that I got along with very few major agents at the time. But both of those shows came from a guy named George Cavado at Premier Agency, oh which was at the time Premier had Bruce Springsteen. Well, that's how I got my U2 days was through Premier. Mm-hmm. George was an exception to the rule. I hated the big agents. They were so pretentious, arrogant. George wasn't. Steve didn't get along with several booking agents in town. He also struggled to work with the Minneapolis Police Department. This becomes a key part of the story once the Ramones show up at Uncle Sam's. When I took over as management, the Minneapolis Police Department were the security there. At that time, you needed them, otherwise... If you had trouble, you couldn't. They wouldn't come to you. But it was a drink and drown night. One of those pay five dollars and get a dime drink. And uh, uh, there was one night when the police kind of overreacted. Something they had instigated blew up, and they had fights on the street, Seventh Street. There was like twenty-two arrests. The police just started arresting people. And as it turns out. A lot of it was they were just arresting people without merit, and they they ended up dropping it all. But the city officially decided we were a club that the Minneapolis police could not work for unless they were bonded, and we couldn't afford bonding. It was it was ridiculously too expensive. But I breathed a sigh of relief because I couldn't tell them what to do. From then on, Uncle Sam's had to hire its own security staff. Enter Richard Luca, who worked the door from seventy-five to ninety-three. Uh, at the time, I was uh, a competitive bodybuilder, and uh, on the track team at the U of M, I was 260 pounds. And they had a night called a Wednesday night drink and drown night, where you pay five dollars at the cover, and drinks were a dime. You know, so it, I came in and I walked in and uh, I looked around. And somebody said, "Hey, you, would you like to work here?" And I said, <laughs> "Do I get free drinks?" You know, and I said, "Okay, all right." There was a uh, 
it, it we was just hoping we'd keep it open another day. Okay, all right. Uh, you know, just just don't beat anybody up. You know, just <laughs> just don't drink too much. You know, it's just that's all it was. When people came in for security, a they always assumed we wanted a bouncer. I took the term bouncer out of the job descriptions after American Events left. They wanted big bouncer guys to be outstaffed. And remember, we inherited a police force that were bouncers. That was their job, kick butt, and they took seriousness in it back in the Mayor Stenvig days. They were the best bouncers you could have because they were armed and they had a whole police force they could call. But the way they handled security stuff was not what you wanted. Working security at the Ramones and Pat Benatar shows changed Richard Lucas' life. About that specific night, oh, it was yes. seeing well. We didn't have the disco that night. One night, and then all of a sudden, this. Who are these people in the black leather jackets and the green hair? You know, who the hell are these people? And this band comes out, and I'm thinking, well, it's just going to be like any concert. You know, they're going to do a couple of songs, and they're going to slow it down. It's like, you know, they're not slowing this thing down. And this crowd is crushing us, and they're yelling and screaming, and people are climbing over us, and we're looking for people trying to spit on them. And at the end of it, I said, this is so awesome. (laughs) And... My ex-wife was there. She was totally into disco. And she looked around and she said, these people are disgusting. Disco is never going to die. And and she said, I'm expecting you home immediately. And she left and I went, f*** you. I'm going to help the band load out. (laughs) And I helped the Ramones, their road crew, load up. And I stayed there until like 3 in the morning. They gave me a Ramones t-shirt and I wore it to work the next day. And then I had to show up the next night for Pat Benatar. The Benatar tickets cost $1.92. That in itself was unusual. Uncle Sam's usually didn't have a cover charge. Yeah, but Pat Benatar was a sex symbol then. She was a rock chick, and every guy I knew wanted to see that show. I still say it was a really good show. I'm sure it was. Live show-wise, and I didn't understand the Ramones because they had no radio play. She's still out there doing it. Well, because the Ramones were the Ramones. I I didn't know that. Kevin Cole DJed both shows. At that point in time, the D, it was still the old school Uncle Sam's DJ setup, which was on the stage. So during the Uncle Sam's heyday, the DJ would be on the stage. There'd be dancers on the stage. A lot of times there'd be a drummer on the stage drumming along to whatever the DJ was spinning. I'd be spinning before they went on, and um, when it came time for the band to play, would make the announcement and literally duck. And I would just sit back there on stage as the band was playing. And, uh, you know, both were really incredible high-energy shows. I remember after the Pat Benatar show, getting them to sign this stand-up from the store. And it was pretty funny. Um, They wrote something like, keep rocking into the 80s, man. The same week as First Avenue's first Ramon show, a young Minneapolis R&B singer performed his first headlining concert away from home. On November 26, 1979, Prince performed at the Roxy in Hollywood. 
Before they went on stage, Prince told his group, I'm going to personify sex in every possible way. That tour, he debuted the song Head, a risque, as yet unrecorded track influenced by the new wave. Uncle Sam's was ready to embrace a new wave, too. Back home, the Ramones and Pat Benatar shows did so well that Steve McClellan won a prize. Because I did Pat Benatar and the Ramones the same mm-hmm. week, and they both sold out, and I, I, I was the highest grossing of all 15 clubs for that one week. Now, that is not really amazing when you consider admission prices and stuff, and when you do, do two $1,500 shows. The two shows also set the stage for Kevin Cole, along with DJs Roy Freedom and Paul Spangrud, to revamp First Avenue's dance nights. It was a real transitional period, and I think another thing that's significant about those two back-to-back shows is what happened right after those shows. So the Ramones were on November 28th, Pat Benatar on the 29th, and then in the main room, Roy and I presented on Saturday, on Friday and Saturday, a new wave experience, which is how it was billed at the time. And that was part of this big statement of like, hey, we're changing. Here's two national bands that we're really excited about. And here's what we're doing on the dance nights. And Friday, Saturday nights were the bread and butter of Uncle Sam's and Sam's and First Avenue. We're going from the soundtrack of Saturday Night Fever to playing The Clash and The Talking Heads and Blondie and Iggy Pop and Gang of Four and Devo and B-52s. And so it made for a really interesting challenge. And that, that was some of the most vital music being made. But part of what made ultimately, I think, First Avenue really successful is this philosophy that Steve really, really supported. And it was this idea that we were going to play an eclectic mix of dance music. It was a challenge. I mean, early on, we'd clear the floor. (laughs) In order to pay the bills, Steve made it his mission to fill Uncle Sam's calendar with DJs and live bands. You have this amount of money you got to cover if you open seven days a week. Geez, $300. I can make that happen. If we do a college night with mud wrestling, we'll get $300, right? And I knew if I was only open five days a week, well, take 2,100 divided by five instead of seven. Every day I was closed, to me, cost us money. In addition to big-name headliners, Uncle Sam's booked openers from around the Twin Cities, forming ties that would only get stronger. The Pat Benatar Show, Curtis A. opened, so we were developing those relationships with those bands already. So, um, Micah, who used to work here, once said that First Avenue is a pirate ship that doesn't go anywhere. That's Daniel Corrigan, First Avenue's official photographer, quoting Micah Eiley. When Cecilia mentioned this to Steve and Leanne Weimar, they had a ready response. Not only was it a pirate ship, but it had a captain that didn't know where he was heading or which shore we were heading for. Or or, or where the Bermuda Triangle or was. was. Yeah, and we were constantly lost. <laughs> but God, we had a good time. <laughs> In 1980, the crew dropped the uncle and just went by Sam's, a name that would last a couple of years. On the next episode, you'll meet the newly christened First Avenue. 
in a heyday of historic shows. Few more significant than Bad Brains, Sweet Taste of Africa, and Hooskadoo. Did you see the Ramones or Pat Benatar at First Avenue? If so, or if you'd like to share another memory, send it to us via email or voice memo at rewindatthecurrent.org. If you enjoyed this story, please mention it in a review of The Current Rewind on Apple Podcasts or share it with the music lovers in your life. Also, we're happy to provide transcripts of each episode of this show. If you'd like to check them out, head over to thecurrent.org/rewind. This episode of The Current Rewind was hosted by Holly Hansen and me, Mark Wheat. It was produced by Cecilia Johnson and scripted by our head writer, Michelangelo Matos. Marisa Morseth is our research assistant and Jay Gabler is our editor. Our theme music is the song Hive Sound by Istep. This episode was mixed by Corey Schreppel. Thanks to Brett Baldwin, Rick Carlson, Shelby Sachs, David Safar and Peter Schultes for additional support. The Current Rewind is made possible in part by the Minnesota Legacy Amendments Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. It is a production of Minnesota Public Radio's The Current.